This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. My co-host is JJ Genflone. And today, we are going to talk about Nexium. That is spelled N-X-I-V-M. Now, I first heard about Nexium from a headline when I heard that Allison Mack was part of a sex cult. So said the headline. And I I didn't watch that much Smallville, but I, I've seen episodes now and then. And so, you know, just the idea that Chloe was running a sex cult is it's like, whoa. And uh, I always preferred Lana anyway, but, you know, those aren't the important things. Lana, who also uh, was at least part of Nexium at, at, to some degree. But... Uh, there's a lot that's complex about Nexium, and I'm going to hand it off to JJ to uh, give you the intro. Hi, everybody. This is this is like a perfect podcast. Like this is this is sort of my favorite podcast idea because for me, it sort of combines true crime almost uh, with human trafficking. And you guys know how much I love both of those things, which is why I am sad. Um, I will throw out there though. We're actually really not going to talk about Allison Mack all that much until towards the end of the podcast. And I never watched Smallville. I know that it's about Superman. So I, I had no frame of reference for her as an actress. So this is all coming from me basically doing a deep dive into a CBC podcast that was done on Nexium, And then a beautiful series of articles um, that were done on Nexium that um, including a really great piece actually done um, by the Rolling Stones, not the Rolling Stones, by Rolling Stone magazine. The Rolling Stones were not writing on this, which we will, we will link to all of you. Now, some of this information, we're going to take you up all the way to the actual court case, which is ongoing, but to give you a brief inter- break, breakdown of what it is. So Nexium, which is a terrible name, starts out being created by a guy named Keith Rainier. He is referred to by his followers as Vanguard, but we're not going to do that because that's stupid. So we're going to call him Keith. So it started by this guy named Keith. Uh, he's, he's now in his late 50s. I think he's 57, 58 right now. But it started roughly 20, 20 years ago and slowly picks up steam. And it's called the Executive Success Program. So sometimes you'll also hear people who are involved in it call it the ESP, the ESP program. Now, what the what what Nexium and ESP initially is is essentially a mid-level marketing company. Which, if you're not familiar with MLMs, those are sort of pyramid schemes. So, Lularoe, Fancy, Amway, Tupperware, these are all MLM schemes. And basically, how you make your money in an MLM is I start off selling a product. I then bring in, you know, three sellers under me. So I bring in Seth, my husband, Emerson, and my mother, Diana. They each then bring in three people. And I make a percentage of what they make. They make a percentage of what their people make and it, and so on and so forth. So the higher you are in the pyramid, the better off you make. And the better off you are, the lower you are in the pyramid, the the less you make and, and the less sort of chance you have to to succeed. And also you tend to have to pay like a startup cost. So in this case, Nexium made a lot of their money from individuals recruiting people for classes, for ESP specific programs. They had almost a college level curriculum 
And then they would, and then everyone who took those classes was then encouraged to bring in other people to be students to take those classes. And they would then get a percentage of what everyone they brought in was paying for these courses. And these are like three, five, ten thousand dollar courses. These are not cheap classes. These are these are priced almost as if that they are graduate level courses. So a few more things on uh, multi-level marketing, uh, also sometimes called network marketing. Yeah. So there's a there's a legal difference between a pyramid scheme and Amway. Well, yeah. No, no, that's important though. Okay, there, that's true. Yeah, there, I know, well, I know. Well, for one Fuck thing, you. I I have some friends who do well in a few of them, and a pyramid scheme, the most popular kind, was one where somebody would give money, and then people would be paid by the lower rungs paying money. Uh, mm-hmm. MLMs tend to be more product based, but they suffer from the same flaw as a pyramid, which is that at some point and it doesn't take that many levels, you run into saturation, that you run into the Earth's population, looking at one example. Like if everyone had six people under them and they had six, it would only take 13 levels to have 13 billion people. That there's only so many people interested. And so even though you might have multiple people buying, it's it's challenging to make it work once it exists for so long. Something more relevant to what we're talking about is that multi-level marketing has some similarities to like religious teaching and evangelism. Yes. Now it depends on the, the specific people in it. It depends on the organization, but I've been to trainings and so on for MLMs. I've known people and you're encouraged to, in a sense, to build relationships and sell with people you know, with people you don't know, and to really think through as a lifestyle how you promote your MLM and gain business. And there's a part of that that's just fine, but then there's a part where that can get dangerous. And I once heard a preacher compare Amway and The Way, and he was able to draw... Between Christian evangelism and Amway, he was able to draw out a number of potential similarities. So with an MLM, there there is the potential danger, again, depending how you do it, of having it be your life and where you look at everybody else through that filter and you're seeking to evangelize to them. And that appears to be the case with multiple people in Nexium. Yeah, and I will say, as is made very clear from a number of interviews that are that are done on the CPC podcast on Nexium, which is called like I think Escaping Nexium, it, it's very clear that that while the people who have left view it now as as an as an MLM, when they were in it, they definitely viewed it more as sort of a self helper or a religious sort of group. So even though there's the you know, pe- people were making money off of being trainers or, or recruiting people into working underneath of him, underneath of them. There's there's also cases where people were actually like even giving money to people they had met to take these courses. So they weren't profiting at all because they so believed in the message of Nexium, which I think is that intersection of religious or sort of, I guess, philo- you know, philosophical feeling that people had had bought into because Keith does actually refer to himself as a philosopher 
he also claims to be the smartest man in the world. Yeah, and well, that, and he's not the only person that does things like this, like Tony Robbins. Oh, I'm yeah. Not, I'm not trying to say they're the same, but Tony Robbins, who calls himself the top life and business strategist, both of those. Oh, yeah. Where, where you have the mindset is often a part of MLMs as well. Yeah. So but here, here's the thing that I find about Nexium is that I find that it, it based on the the philosophy or sort of the the main theory pushed by Nexium. Well, the the three main theories sort of pushed by Nexium make me think that it was already an organization that, while it might not have have set out to basically become a human trafficking entity or an exploitative entity, had had a lot of potential there because of its belief structure and that in particular is one of the things that nexium preached was sort of this idea that individuals that there, that there is no victim there are no victims in the world what happens to you in your life is a result of how you respond to things how you handle things so if someone say a, a partner is is abusive and it makes you feel sad it's you've got to address something in yourself that has a that has allowed yourself to feel sad to feel that way so there, there's no victimhood and, and nothing happens to you. It's that you react to things happening. And so that puts a lot, a lot of stress and attention on the individual being victimized to say, well, well what, what did I do that caused this abuse? What did I do to feel abused? It's not that I'm being abused, it's that I feel abused. So that's the first one. The second issue is that there were multiple secret groups built in in Nexium where members were very cult-like uh, members were pushed, one, to keep extreme secrecy, but two, necessarily didn't know who was in what group and who wasn't. So within Nexium, there was an all-men's group called the Protectors. There was also a group called Jeunesse. So the Protectors is all male, Jeunesse is all female. And then within Jeunesse, there's this other group, DOS, Dominus of Sequius Sororium, which loosely translates from very, very bad Latin to Lord Master of the Obedient Female Companions, which is a very creepy title, but we'll get to that in a little bit. And that's the subheading of number three, is that what was sort of built into Nexium was this idea of women needing to be obedient, uh, particularly to men, that women are to provide acts of care that men are to have sex with multiple women or be engaged with multiple women where women are supposed to be sort of tied to just one particular man so that sort of that i think led to an overall culture where the eventual was we'll talk about later possible tra trafficking of women was sort of built into the system i think from the very beginning i don't know how you feel about that seth but that's that's sort of the feeling that I get is that whether it was intended or not, I think the belief structure that existed within Nexium was just like the perfect mixing bowl for this eventual crime to happen. Well, to to draw on some of my own experiences, I've been part of different types of church groups and known a lot of religious people in my life. And 
like I went to one church where we had accountability groups and we shared and we would set our own goals. And like there, there is something that can be powerful and helpful about sharing. Mm-hmm. It can be helpful to have people point out things you don't want to hear. Having people in your life, having people love you, like these are all powerful, valuable things, some of which Nexium drew on. Like the, that there are concepts that are widely accepted that Nexium is using. So to go to the first one that JJ mentioned, that we can choose how we want to respond or feel. Like within cognitive behavioral therapy, I've read multiple books that dealing with abuse that tell you that, that you don't just have to be a victim, that you don't just have to respond to what the abuser is trying to do to you. Like, if, especially if you're a, like in a close relationship where it's not that easy to get out of it, where one can say, okay, I, I can step back and realize that that's not true or that I'm, I don't have to feel bad because they're berating me, like that I can step back and have some control. And when it's used in a healthy way, it's that. It's trying to have some control and to not just have your emotions go with how people are treating you. But but there's a limit to that. And and that's one of the concerns I personally have with that is like, I can see how that could be helpful and true. But on the other hand, that shouldn't let everyone else off the hook like what i can do to somebody if i if i say something really hurtful and a person feels hurt sure there there, there's some latitude in there for them to choose how they want to feel but that shouldn't leave me off the hook and in some of what i've heard in nexium it's kind of iffy in regard to that that there are perpetrators and, and oppressors and just because i have a certain amount of control over how I feel doesn't mean I can't be affected by what somebody else is saying to me. And it doesn't mean that they should be absolved of responsibility. No. And I think, and I think part of it is too, is that then I don't have to feel badly for anything that I've done either to, to other people, because if they feel badly about it, that's the thing that they need to work out within, within themselves. Yeah, well, and I, I once went to a four-day workshop that was very, very intense where they, they gave feedback, and that, that's what it was structured to do. And, you know, they're like, listen to the things you're resistant to because denial can work like that. Like, we can push things out and choose to not be honest with ourselves. But it, it's, a, it's a tricky, dangerous ground, too, depending on who's facilitating. There, there's also that, like I, I heard things during those four days, some of which were uncomfortable. Some of them are like, oh, this thing that I don't think anyone notices, everyone's noticing, so why am I trying to hide it? So so there's things where it could be helpful as it was to some of the people in Nexium, But there was also people affiliated with that program started to feel like they had the right to give people unsolicited feedback at all times if they were within their church or their friendship group. Which in hindsight, I disagree with because I don't have to accept unsolicited feedback. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it looks like that's also part of Nexium that people are able to give unsolicited feedback and then tell people how, how they should be responding if they respond one way that they should respond another way. So I, I, anyway, in drawing some of that, I'm hoping I'm show, 
conveying some of the complexity and that there are some known good tools that Nexium did not invent that already existed that were brought into this mm-hmm. that had some potential to be m- manipulative and ultimately not freeing. I think also too part part of Nexium and one of the things that is discussed in almost all the articles about it is that Nexium was really big on this idea of that we 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 break down your identity to basically build you up stronger. This is certainly not new. This is every almost every organization from you know the military to certain religions to hell. I feel like sometimes the PhD program is this right break down who who you think you are and and why you think that way, and then we will help rebuild you stronger within the organization and and sometimes this works well right some sometimes Mm -hmm. this is great for people other other times if you're in a system that's exploitative this can that's preying on your vulnerabilities this can be really damaging and the fact that nexium combined this breaking down of identity with this idea of starting roughly um six years into the creation of the program so it went on for 14 years this idea of well you shouldn't really have contact with people who aren't in nexium outside of recruitment efforts so you want to try and keep recruiting people in but say if your family isn't on board with nexium and isn't willing to come to any of the trainings and isn't willing to possibly join the organization then you need to dump them you need to not spend time with these people who are not supportive of your journey within Nexium. You should be dating or marrying only people within Nexium. You should be working for the organization primarily, not, you know, working outside of it. You need to associate primarily with just the group and you are to never speak badly about the group. So I have studied cults a little bit because uh, in putting together my psychological coercion paper and our podcast from way back, which we'll link to, there's similarities in technique between torture, between trafficking and slavery, and between cults, although there's also differences. So I'm going to link to a Psychology Today article which mentions four characteristics of cults. There's more than one definition of cults out mm-hmm. there, so but this is close enough to be helpful. First, there's usually a charismatic leader who draws you in. They're often compelling. Do they yeah. go by shitty names like Vanguard? <laughs> I'm sorry. So we're being serious. I'm just saying, if your spiritual leader gives himself a nickname, you might be in a cult. Next, number two. Number two, the leader <laughs> sets up... An in-group versus an out-group, which is exactly what JJ just mentioned. Uh, three, control is maintained, which is usually uh, some abuse combined with love and praise, something that's also part of uh, abusive domestic relationships and any type of abusive situation, really. And number four, to leave is to be cut off or put in danger. All of which happens in this case, which is why people who have left have now started saying that, you know, hey, I was involved in a cult. Well, and I've seen, like, at one of the churches I went to where I heard some feedback on message boards about some people's experiences in their small groups. And I thought to myself, that that's nothing like the small group that I'm in, which yes. is true. And... Sometimes you put people in leadership positions and for a variety of reasons, 
they operate different differently and maybe it's more problematic. Yes. So Nexium is not one thing. That is that is very true. I I still, you know, if you name yourself after a video game character from the nineteen eighties, I'm allowed to make fun of you. I'm just saying so there's multiple things that happening. are questionable. Well, yeah, and, and there's multiple things that are questionable about, about Keith Rainier. Yes. What else can you tell us about him? Well, in addition to maintaining that he is the smartest man in the world with an IQ of over 200, mm-hmm. he has a long history of actually being involved in, in mid-level marketing. He seems to sort of be a master of that. That seems to be how he made the majority of his money uh, for the almost entirety of his life. He is someone who kind of ran almost a town within a town, almost, uh, in in New York, where he was having people move to to be close to him, to sort of live in this, like, group of houses on sort of a cul-de-sac, because he, he liked to have a lot of people around him. He also has a very complicated romantic life if if you will say he in in particular has said that he he is involved with multiple partners and has always been involved in, in multiple female partners and that that's a you know that those were all consensual sexual relationships and that it's really important for him to be able to have multiple sexual partners because that's actually a thing that men need he also seems to have a very complicated relationship with women period because of just and this is just me pulling from like direct recordings you can actually go online um and nexium still maintains their their youtube page so you can go and have to watch the sort of direct interviews with him uh in particular he he has a lot of things that he says about women being like sort of inherently weak over emotional that they tend to be flaky, that they tend to not be willing to commit, that women are petty, that women need to be controlled. So he he seems there are some there are some very misogynistic overtones in not so much Nexium, but in the protectors and in the JNS group. And then especially in the DOS group that we will get to. But overall, Rainier, um, Keith Rainier, I'm going to call him Keith, exceptionally charismatic, very, very good at fundraising, very good at getting people engaged and getting people to become participants. One of the biggest backers for Nexium, which I think is the most, one of the most interesting parts of this, is that he is very much backed by uh, the Brothman sisters, who are the hair, the heirs to the Seagram's uh, liquor fortune. In fact, Claire Brothman, who is like the one of, one of the heirs, is the operations director still of Nexium, and and still par- participates with that. So she, they've provided him with millions of dollars. They've have tons of. They, you know, so they pay for all the lawyers. They're, it's suspected that they're the ones actually paying for the defense fund, which is set up as a trust for Keith right now since he's been arrested. And in the past, they were the ones who, when Keith eventually will get to it, uh, fled the US and was arrested in uh, Puerto Vallarta at a $10,000 a week luxury villa that they were paying for, that they that they had booked for him. So he's certainly attracted a lot of very, very rich, very, very fancy backers. 
that includes Allison Mack, the Smallville actress that we'll talk about later. But, I mean, at one point in its heyday, you have over 17,000 active members in this organization. He's making, in some cases, over a hundred grand a month, pure profit from these systems. And actually occupying in four different countries and also running which which no one has talked about in any of these articles and i can't find if they're still in operation or not and i really want to know operating schools in four countries including mexico that were teaching the nexium system and one one of the things that they push for their pedagogy is that this idea of a trusted teacher and language acquisition. So while kids take eight common core classes, each class is taught in a different language by a different teacher that is also their house parent with the idea that then they will pick up and become polygots naturally. But based on some of the misogynistic overtones and some of the alleged and and, and the alleged uh, sexual abuse and sex trafficking has me very concerned if these schools are still in operation or, or what sort of the oversight of these schools is. So because while there are a lot of very well-respected professional people, I mean, doctors, lawyers, actors, musicians, like a whole cast of people was involved in Nexium. No one at the the higher echelon has an education degree. And so that sort of just concerns me that if, they, if they're opening up schools, how is this not sort of just indoctrination centers? Yeah, and what what are some of the entry level techniques that they used in recruiting? Okay. <laughs> so the first one is is that generally people were brought in by a friend or someone they had met that was exceptionally charismatic that had come up to talk to them. So this idea of you know, I'm on a cruise and a friend of mine comes up and starts to talk to me or you know, someone who I've gone on a date with comes up to talk to me and says this this is gives a personal story. This is this is a series of courses that I've taken. This is an educational course that has changed my life. These are all the positives this course has done for me. I I really highly recommend it. I think you should come check it out. So no different than someone who's trying to sell you on going to their yoga class or like to become vegan or join their church or like try a new brand of coffee. Like it's a very standard sort of pitch that people make. Where it gets tricky is once people go for these classes, the way that it's set up is that for your first introductory class, it's a three to five day retreat, and it can be anywhere from a grand to five grand to buy into. And so they have people put a deposit down. They, they do really sort of hard, pushy sales tactics to get people to put a deposit down. And then if people will call and try to cancel and say, you know, I really can't afford that right now. One of the things they'll do on the phone is be like, and, you know, so you can't afford it. You're 30 years old and you, you can't afford $5,000 to go to a class that'll change your life. Like, don't you want to do that? Wouldn't you want to change this class? Wouldn't you want to do this? And so they get people to come into these classes and each, each, the first three days are super weird. The first three days of the class are, are super weird. There's a giant picture of Keith on the wall next to a giant picture of uh, the vice president who, who has since died, woman who has since died. They make you do a lot of identity stuff. They do, they make you do a lot of movement exercises and it's kind of, to break it down very simple, simply, it's a bullshit test. What, what are people willing to put up with? What are people willing to, to endure? And if you're someone who looks at this and goes, man, this is dumb. I'm out. I quit by the third day. They don't want you. What they want are the people who come in on day four still thinking 
there's something wrong with me that I'm not getting this and this isn't connecting yet. I, I, I've got to see this out to see what I'm getting. And because one of the things they push identity wise and the breaking down of identity is, you know, Hey, you're flaky. Hey, you give up when things get tough. People Mm -hmm. sort of end up building up in their brain. Well, I have to stick this out because this is me. I do quit when things get rough. And then at the end of that five week session, not five weeks, sorry, five day session, you get a sash. And like, this is the thing that humans like, like we love, why do you think people want to be sorted into Harry Potter houses, right? We psychologically, we love categories. We love feeling not only like we belong, but that there's a point system, that there are categories that we belong to, that we can, we can control, we can move up or down, we, we can be engaged in. So they give you a sash and it's, I think you get like white at the beginning and then they move up through colors, just like you're in a karate class until eventually you hit purple and then you can move beyond and you're fully realized. Same as in, you know, Scientology has its level levels where you become fully clear. But the only one who's ever hit that final level is Keith. So you want to stick around and see how far you can get up level wise. And the way you move up the levels is you take the classes, you work, you bring in more people. And so after a while, it almost becomes like, I think like a sunk cost sort of thing where people are so into it that like, oh, I've got to just see where this takes me. I've got to go. And so that's how this all pans out. And then almost immediately too, like you're in a, a very welcoming, loving community. So they do something called love bombing. Whereas once you've joined the group, you know, tons, you know, maybe you're someone who's just moved to an area and you're lonely. Suddenly you have tons of people inviting you out for dinner, bringing you to their home, helping you, particularly uh, in this case, because there were a lot of people involved in the entertainment industry at, at the beginning and then continuing out, you know, we'll help you get an agent. We'll help you book jobs. We're, we're going to help you succeed. And so people end up tied into this because this now becomes their personal and their professional life. And so before you know it, you're a hundred percent in. Now here's, here's where we move though from Nexium into the sort of organizations that were nested within Nexium. So not everybody in Nexium was involved in the protectors. And not everyone who was involved in Nexium was involved in something that is called Jeunesse or something called the Vow. And what these what these two smaller groups though really focused on was 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 what I would define in an opinion a very weird sex curriculum almost. And so what it pushed was for both men and women that there there are very distinct biological gender differences that play out psychologically and that have also played out socially. And so men want to be protectors, men want to be sexual because they have a biological imperative to spread their seed. Uh, Men want to be powerful, men want to have their authority recognized. Very sort of traditional masculine roles reinforced. And that men not participating in these roles has hurt them and has led to a lot of sort of internal issues. And some people who were involved in the protectors group, though, said that this was phenomenal for them because suddenly they had, you know, if you needed something built or something done, a whole sea of guys would show up. So for a lot of people, suddenly they had this male community they didn't have before that wasn't necessarily tied to like going out to the bar It also had a very big 
both these groups, but had a very big push for sort of physical fitness. I'll talk about how the women's group became very toxic quickly in, in relation to that. But with the guys, it was, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, you know, get healthy, eat well, exercise. Uh, they they did really push that they wanted people to become vegetarian. So sort of this this you know live live clean, be good, be hyper masculine men. But what was included in that in the protectors group was well, and and men get upset because they don't understand women. Now again, I couldn't find anything on this. I don't know if Nexium felt the same way about homosexual couples or if they took I have I really have no idea I couldn't find anything on it so if anyone has anything out there on it I would be very interested how they dealt with non-heterosexual relationships because they definitely really positioned men as one thing women as the other and that it's very much tied to sexual performance of men with women and women with men so I'm I'm a little confused so if you guys anyone has anything let me know on the women's end Janice what they said was that like women feel oppressed because we're because because women are excited, they're in, impulsive, they were fearful, were malicious, were manipulative. That's the one thing is that always comes down to is that women are manipulative, both of, of themselves and of others. Uh, they're sneaky, they can't be trusted. So a very misogynistic, very sort of anti-feminism view of women that was taught to the women and told to the women that and told to the men is that men get upset and are hurt because they feel unheard and they feel disrespected and they feel uncared for and women end up feeling unheard or disrespected or uncared for because they're not listening to the men or allowing the men to act like the men they should be and there was a really weird comment from the from a washington post article where they were interviewing someone named nancy saltzman who was a was a junior leader in nexium was talking about withholding sex. She was like, in regards to men, she said, or withholding sex, we make them work for it and they just don't understand and they feel fearful and un unaccepted. That was Lauren Saltzman. Yeah, sorry, Lauren Saltzman. That to me is terrifying because it positions sex as like something that like is automatically deserved and that it's only men who want it and that women hold it back to harm them which is essentially rape culture.txt. And I just have a, I have a lot of problems with that. And I think that that's very emblematic of sort of the culture that existed within it. Yet people, women within Jeunesse said that it was phenomenal because they basically had this wonderful sorority of very powerful, very bright, very kind, caring women who were supporting one another. Where I have... I, I feel like maybe warning signs should have started going off is that while maybe the protectors push sort of being physically strong and, and physically able to, to protect oneself, Janice pushed that women should be thin because one of one of the problems with women is they're manipulative and they're self-indulgent. So I, I don't know if it was ever stated anywhere, but a number of articles I read talked about how Keith really pushed that women should be on 900 calories a day. That That should be what they're eating a day, that women are to be thin women are to be uh, he didn't say this but somebody who who left nexium and in one of the articles actually describes it as you could always tell keith's women because they look like bobbleheads and so this idea that you you need to be thin you need to be tiny you need to have control over yourself via this eating 
And that to me is a big red flag because one, it's removing the agency of an individual to choose when they're hungry, when they're going to eat, what they're going to do. But Seth and I know that hunger is used both in human trafficking cases and in cults as a method of control. Because when people are hungry, it's it's harder for them to think. It's it's harder for them to plan. When when you're in starvation mode or actively malnourished, there's there's a number of neurological things that happen that make it really hard for you to respond and fight back. And then that takes us, I think, so sort of what what is still problematic there within in Jeunesse and the protectors into just DOS. DOS, this this side group. And here's here's the thing I really want to push about DOS is that DOS was, as far as we know, with the exception of the involvement of Keith, an entirely female group. So here's how DOS works. It was a exclusive invite only smaller group within Jeunesse. Uh, the article from Rolling Stone positioned that there are roughly about 40 people perhaps in, in DOS, but who, how many numbers there actually were, it, it's unclear because people would come, would come in and out obviously. So how, how DOS worked is, so you got, indu- you got inducted and the first thing that you had to do was you had to accept that you would be a, literally a slave. They used the term master slave. You would be a slave to a master and the master was a woman already in DOS who had a higher level than you who you felt uh, that you were willing to make a lifetime commitment to, who would be sort of, the idea was that they would be dragging you through through your goals. And that that's, this women-only sorority would be helpful to you in, in a number of ways. And you've already, you've already agreed at this point, you're already in Nexium, you're already in Jeunesse, so why, why not join another group? So you agree to be a slave. You go through as part of of your initiation ceremony, after agreeing to be a master, you have to go, you have to give something called collateral. And this is built into the system of Nexium. Nexium worked on this system of collateral where a lot of times to make people accountable to their goals, they had to, to give something. And so like, for example, I promise that I will lose the 10 pounds I've been saying I'm gonna lose. And, to, and if I don't lose it, I am going to legally sign my house over to, you know, the, the person doing my Nexium training. I give the person who's running my Nexium training, training five grand and say that if I don't save an additional five grand during this month, that they're allowed to keep it. Okay, so collateral was already sort of built into the system of Nexium and that trickled down to Jeunesse. And then that was positioned as being part of becoming a new DOS member. But in this case, the collateral had to be something that would be life altering. So this had to be photos, incriminating photos, videos, uh, confessions, legal statements about your family, you know, massive secrets that would ruin your life. This had to be something big. One woman in particular describes that she had to take a, and this is kind of graphic, she had to take a photo of her that, that showed her whole body face included of her holding open her labia and, and taking the picture that way completely naked but because she was a, she worked in education, if this photo were to ever get out, you know, she's probably not going to be able to 
maintain being a teacher. You know, so sort of all of these things that naked photos, statements that your husband beat you, uh, statements that you had committed child abuse. One woman was asked to sign her house over to them, like give them the deed to her house. So this collateral that could be life changing if you left us. Now, the idea was, is what it was, what it was told to women joining was that this collateral is to show your commitment, to show that you're willing to make a lifetime commitment. No one will see it except for your master who you are supposed to trust, you know, and so this is a, this is a trust fall made physical. What functionally ended up happening is that when women then tried to quit, they were blackmailed with this evidence. They were told that if they came forward, this evidence would be you know, their assets would be taken, this evidence would be presented, you know, publicly, it would be leaked on the internet, it would be shared. And so women were functionally blackmailed into staying, and not only just staying, but being compliant while staying. And so this is the coercion and fraud part of human trafficking, because these women were tricked, and then were made, were then coerced to complying because of this fear of, of blackmail. It also seems that over time, though not in every case, uh, DOS members were made to provide new collateral every month, sort of perpetually upping the ante, which then led to a lot of people like signing over all of their money. Uh, in particular, there's a there's a text message I'm going to reference later on where a woman signed away the rights to her future children. <laughs> you know, so thing, things that necessarily wouldn't hold up in a court of law, but that people might think would. They then would go through a ritual to, to continue joining. And, and this is something that happens slowly, you know, so it wasn't that someone asked you, hey, do you want to join this group? By the way, I need a picture of you naked and a picture of your labia and also raised to your future children. And now we're going to go do a ritual. This is something that, you know, could take weeks or months of it being repeatedly brought up of, you know, we're really, we just feel such a connection to you. We're so excited to have you join. There's going to be so much you can do with this group. Don't you want to be better? Don't you want to join this group? And so eventually, if you agreed, you were taken to a private location, blindfolded, taken to a secret location. You were then asked to strip naked. You then met all the other women, also naked. You then were taken to, got dressed, were then taken to a secondary location, still blindfolded, got naked again, and then were held down by the other members while you were branded using a cauterizing pen and this was all filmed and and what some of the women say is that they were told initially that this was essentially going to be like a small dime-sized tattoo in a hideable area that was a symbol of femininity or that this was a symbol for uh, the four elements but ultimately appears to be the in, in every case appears to be the initials KR for Keith Rainier but in some cases also appears to have the initials of AM for Allison Mack, who who is Keith Rainier's like sort of number two in the organization. And so far, JJ has really understated that experience based on the, yeah. Yeah. the audio from one of the participants. Yeah. So when when I'm talking about the 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 holding down and the branding, this is something that took anywhere, I think it's smallest amount from 20 minutes to an hour. It was incredibly painful. It was incredibly traumatizing, both physically and psychologically. People felt like they couldn't leave. And I would really, at this point, suggest that everyone go listen to the CBC podcast because that does feature a direct victim impact statement from, from a woman who 
had this done to her and her her i saw i cried her her detailing of you know why she stayed in the room as like an adult woman and and why you know she held other women down and then they held her down and you know and why she went through with this and and what it meant and how it felt i think is really important for for you to hear to really understand i think what what was at play there yeah well and part of it was like you know be be the leader be tough show show that you can endure it and that you're committed and all of that which she did but like the very first story she told of some the first person who had the pen on them while being held down they literally fully jumped yeah because she said like an electrified fish this is a cauterizing pen so so the, there is a re, 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 rebuttal in big quotes. There, there's a counter narrative from the lawyer who I had negative feelings more, multiple times while I was oh. listening to it. Yeah, his interview on C on the CBC makes me want to mail him a poop. Like he talks about, like, well, people they made a promise, and people need to, you know, people don't take their promises seriously. They were manipulated into making a promise. And life, but one of the things he, he mentioned with the branding, which that's what it was, branding. Yeah. He likened it to like male athletes getting a tattoo. Mm-hmm. This is not a tattoo. Yes. This hurts and, and a lot fact, more than a tattoo. Doss, members of Doss explicitly said that they were told that they were not getting a tattoo because tattoos can be removed. This was supposed to be something that was permanent no matter what. A cauterizing gun is to primarily to cauterize blood from like if you have a, a vein and you're bleeding or you have a wound, it's to burn it so it will stop bleeding. It's not designed to leave marks on the body. That's not the purpose of a cauterizing pen. So you're literally searing your flesh in order to leave an indent. Mm-hmm. And I would like to point out that this was done by a doctor, but it's a doctor that was in Nexium. So I think that contributed to it too, is that like, look, like we have a sterile area for this to happen. We have a doctor. Someone came all this way to do it. You agreed to this, didn't you? So they're very, very sort of coercive things happening yeah. within this. And bear in mind, too, to, to be brought in, generally, this means that you've been in this group for, for several years at this point. So you've already committed to a certain extent in, in a variety of ways, in a variety of dramatic ways. So. Yeah. So I'll, I'm going to read some excerpts from a uh, psychological coercion page where it's coercive psychological systems use psychological force in a coercive way to cause the learning and adoption of an ideology or designated set of beliefs, ideas, attitudes, or behaviors. So in that environment, the victim is forced to adapt in a series of small invisible steps. Each step is sufficiently small that the subject does not notice the changes or identify the coercive nature of the process until much later. These tactics can be reinforced in a group setting by well-intended but deceived friends and allies of the victim. This keeps the victim from setting up the ego defenses normally maintained in known adversarial situations. 
So people, including the main protagonist of the uh, CBC series, like has had this happen where you have that ego defense of, oh, I th- this seems wrong, but there, there's all these manipulative tactics that override that. Plus, the more of a sunk cost you have, the farther in you've gone, the easier it is to override those ego defenses. Mm-hmm. And part of Keith's retort and part of the lawyer's retort and other people is that everything that happens is consensual. And we'll, we'll get more into that as we get into the, quote, sex cult part. But mm-hmm. to quote something else from com that according to Taylor and Len Gone, who are two researchers on psychological abuse, that skilled psychological predators know that if they can manipulate the circumstances so that victims believe they have consented, that yeah. it was their choice and that they are responsible, that the predators will get off free. So this is where the consent of psychological coercion is harder to identify if you're looking at it because there's a degree of consent, but it's manipulated consent that in the case of what we're talking about with DOS, where it's this identity erosion and ego, like my my own defenses erosion to where it becomes harder and harder to make that step. And the more of your life that is invested, not just in Nexium, but then in these subgroups, it becomes harder and harder to take that step, especially if you've heard that some people have done it before and maybe it didn't go well, so go so well for them. Well, and also, so yeah, and so that's the side. So there, there are two things sort of happening in these in these branding ceremonies too that I think are existing in people's background. This one, you're brought in generally. You you were asked to join this by someone who wants to take you on as a master, who was generally someone in this in in the case that's in the CBC thing as her best is her best friend of over seven years. Mm-hmm. So you have that happening. So the sort of idea of not only do I need to prove this to myself, I need to prove this to somebody who who I love and who cares about me. But there's also a side issue here, which is that past members that have quit, not DOS, but quit Janess or quit Nexium, have been sued. And so this idea of outsiders are punished. I'm going to lose my entire group if I leave here. And the media has made false claims, so you really shouldn't believe them. And so, yes. oh, yeah, I've heard that, but I'm going to dismiss it. Uh, to to follow up on the collateral, like one of the defenses is this is just something like I've experienced in an accountability group where we're just talking yeah. and then I voluntarily with no coercion say, you know, I really want to do this. And if I don't, I'll give you $10 yeah. where where nobody has told me that I need to do that. But where I'm like, you know, I, I, I need that extra motivation in order to be committed to my goal. Yes. And that's how I've heard this defended, is that's all this is. Although once once you start giving examples, even the lawyer was feeling uncomfortable with, with some of the examples, that it was kind of shady. And that's exactly it. It's, it's one thing if I'm saying, as one of the examples, like, oh, well, if I don't do this, then the group commits to not having coffee, so therefore I will go out and run, which really that's not even painful to you specifically Mm -hmm. when you are told no no you need to give something that is actually risky for you to give me and i'm going to tell you 
whether it's risky enough. And if not, then I'm going to tell you to to up the ante. That's not the same. That's nowhere near the same. Yeah. And that does, as as has been said, that does sound like you're setting up people to blackmail them. Yes. It it also it's then too. I think once then people have this sort of physical constant reminder on their body. You know, what do you do with that? Do you do you quit now that you you have it? And I mean, and I'm someone who has a, a lot of tattoos, and someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about tattoos for the future, tattoos for now, planning. You know, it's not something to go into lightly. Lightly, even though it's something that I could laser off if I needed to down the line. And that's something removable. These these people have a brand on them for the rest for the rest of their lives, of of an organization that they feel harmed them, and and that in itself is, you know, that's every time you look in the mirror, you're you're going to get reminded. So that's a big, yeah, big so, issue. So Allison Mack has said that she came up with the the brand mm-hmm. because specifically the tattoos could be removed. That that she has two tattoos. And she found that she, you know, they didn't mean anything to her and that, you know, tattoos are quite, you know, everyone has tattoos now. So it's not nearly as, as special, whereas a brand is somehow unique and present. But also what you see then is, too, even the people who said that they consented to the to the brand is that they were told it was the symbol of feminism or the symbol of the, of the four uh, elements. But ultimately, it turned out to be Keith Rainier and Allison Mack's initials. And that they were told it was going to be much smaller than it ended up being, you know. And some of and some of the pictures that have been released of the brands, they are quite large. So yeah, Allison Mack said that she wanted something that would be more meaningful than tattoos and something that took guts, or in this case, pain. But it's interesting with uh, Sarah, who was the, the prime protagonist on uh, the CBC series, even enduring the brand wasn't enough. Like she, she's had her misgivings, but that wasn't enough to push her over the edge. It wasn't until she saw initials. Yeah. And she which realized think, it was a brand. Which, which I think is so interesting because it wasn't, so it's not, it's not that I did this, like you made me do this thing that hurts me. It's not that it's that you misled me about what it meant. And the fact I can't understand enough, the fact that this was positioned for these women that this was a women's only group and that this was going to be a group. DOS was a group both within the organization, like within Nexium itself, but also like more, more wildly, that was going to be a political group. This was going to be a humanitarian group. You know, that this, this group was the best possible way you could, if you were somebody who wanted to help the world this this group was the way to do it, getting ownership into this group. And it was going to be a women-led revolution, essentially, this group. Which, again, may sound naive, but remember, there's a lot of stuff going on here. But when she realizes, or when it was pointed out to her, and when a number of women who had gotten the brand started talking to one another about it and looking at it, that it had his, like his, his initials on it, they were like, what do you mean that Keith... I thought you said this was women-only, that Keith wasn't involved in this. Why do I have a man's name on me i didn't consent to that i didn't agree to that i thought that this was something else what's going on here and that's what made that was sort of the minute i think that their trust was shattered because then every time they looked in the mirror there was proof that something had been been done to them that that was shady at at the very least and that's what sort of started people talking and then 
so part of the master slave thing was is that you you were you were a slave that reported to your master and then you yourself were supposed to bring in slaves that would report to you and call you master and that there were there were two things in particular that you were supposed to do as a slave and one was that you had to do at least an hour a week of something called an active care which was basically free labor so an active care might be running errands cooking cleaning babysitting working at that person's business for an hour a week like so that active care was required specifically they, acts of care for their masters yeah for their masters or, or at their to, master's direction yeah so they had to do at least an hour a week at least an hour a week which means that you could be asked to do more could quite possibly be made to do more for their master then they also had to do an act of self-denial which was something their master would tell them to do ideally if they didn't meet their goals but could just perhaps be used as a form of punishment more generally if their master thought that they weren't progressing fast enough which was anything from like sleeping on the floor for a week to to not eating for a day or a certain period of time to you know to having to go run for a certain number of miles and then on top of all of this you had to be perpetually available. So they had this system called the ready system. And what would happen is if your master texted you, you had to respond within a five minute window to the master. So they would text you ready and you as a slave would have to respond back ready. And if you didn't respond, then you were, then you were supposed to be punished. And if you were ever going to be unavailable as a slave, if you were ever going to be unavailable, you had to tell your master that you were going dark and it could only be for a few minutes. So you see people having to report in, when they're driving, when they're getting in an elevator, when they're say maybe going to a gynecologist's office, and if you if you didn't respond, you you could be punished. Um, you were not allowed to turn your phone off, and a lot of the ready calls would happen multiple times throughout the night or while people were sleeping, which to me is is another thing that happens a lot in cults, but also happens a lot in trafficking. And Seth, maybe you want to talk about this a little bit more, but this idea of you're not allowed to sleep. So you're just perpetually exhausted because mm -hmm. so now if you're malnourished and exhausted, it, it, it breaks down your ability to fight back. It, beats, it breaks down your ability to, you know, reason, you know, if you've ever stayed up all night to work, you know, the next morning you are not your best self. You know, you don't think super clearly. And, and that's, that's a tactic. That's a, that's a planned tactic. It's much easier to control you if you're exhausted. But one of the, things I mentioned in the psychological coercion podcast was uh, Biderman's framework, which mm -hmm. was developed for torture. Yes. Also applies to trafficking. And I'll just go through each of these. Uh, number one is isolation. Check. Check in a, in a way. Uh, but the bigger one is number two, monopolization of perception. Like yes. if somebody's having to think about this all of the time, Mm -hmm. then yes, that, that's monopolizing the perception. And there's a cognitive cost, which leads into number three, which is induced debilitation and exhaustion. That if you have ever noticed, I mean, I've noticed that if I'm on Facebook all the time and on social media and on news and following whatever the, the events, like there, there's a cost to that. It, it the, all the, the dopamine and everything else, like it takes a toll on your mind to always be on. And this is a way of being always on. Threats, in the sense that you're committed and there, there's going to have to be a downside to not following something in order for pe people to do them. Occasional indulgences, I mean, that, that's part of cults and cultic situations where you're going to be nice to them too. But another big one is demonstrating omnipotence and omniscience. Totally. 
seven degradation, I'll get back to that, and eight enforcing trivial demands. Like it could be if you're having somebody that has to do a certain task or not do a certain task, but degradation, like to, to restate, like the some of the photos that had to be taken, being told to take off one's clothes. Mm-hmm having a brand on you, like these are all things that could be degrading. So we, we just went through the eight things that torture victims and trafficking victims experience, and some of them are screaming out loud. So, so the master slave. So now I think it's, we're, it's, we're ready to talk about sex, right? Y- yeah. Uh, okay, so, so leading into that, so the headline that I referred to earlier that you may have seen out there is like, this is a sex cult. And I don't know that I would call this a sex cult, but sex cult has that ring to it, that big scary ring of, oh my gosh, it involves sex and it's a cult and people are being sex trafficked. There, there is an element of sex within these groups that look very cultic. And that uh, we'll, we'll talk about the aspects of how that can relate to trafficking shortly. So I don't know that Nexium is a sex cult, but there's some really questionable things that in, within DOS and relating to Keith. So take it away, JJ. Yeah. So the problem is, well, one, there's, well, I mean, there's a lot of issues here, but two, one, you're not allowed to use people for free labor. So that's the labor trafficking that he's later charged with by the FBI. Okay, so on the sex trafficking end, what happens here is that, that there were women who were told, slaves, quote, like these women who identify themselves as slaves, were told by their masters that they had to go have sex with their nair, and that was their assignment, that was their act of care. And when these women would refuse or say no, they were told explicitly, well, if you don't, you, what your punishment is going to be is that this collateral that you've given us, like all of these damaging pieces of information, those are going to be released. So you're going to lose your family, you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose all your finances, you're going to get arrested. So we're going to use this collateral if you don't have sex with Keith. So when you blackmail someone to have sex with someone, to to make someone have sex with someone, that's trafficking. There are also side pieces of, of people, women who claim that they were sexually assaulted by Renair, so it wasn't that their master told them that they had to participate in sex acts with them. It was that literally, like, Renair, like, physically forced people to pose for nude photographs, or that he he forcibly raped uh, another woman. Um, another individual, this is this has been released now as Allison Mack, but in the Rolling Stone article, she's identified as CC1. A a defector told a story that Mack was forced by Renair to force her slaves to pose for nude photographs that included close-up pictures of their vaginas, which were then passed on to Renair, which then just means there was even more collateral of a payment for them. And that these slaves who didn't even know that Renair was a part of this organization, like part of the, the DOS organization were, were then controlled by him via slaves that he had underneath him who were then their masters and in the in the Rolling Stone article, they talk about how they the U.S. Attorney's Office has labeled Rainier as having uh, fifty direct underslaves. So we'll throw in the word "alleged" for for all of these yes. things. Yeah, don't don't sue us. We've got no money. But there's enough things that are dicey, including just like listening to the lawyer made me more convinced that there was shady things going on rather yeah. than less. So there there's definitely some things that are off with this organization. But having said that. Based on the story 
that we have and what people are saying, it certainly looks like psychological coercion and it certainly looks like both sex and labor trafficking, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And if, if you look at the, the picture of the brand, it's very clear that it's a AM and a, and a KR. I mean, this isn't like finding a picture of Jesus in your toast. Like it's very clear <laughs> that that's what it is. And then the fact, so the minute that people were forced with this collateral to, to do labor or, or to perform uh, sexual acts, that was when trafficking happened. And that's why he and, and a number of his direct slaves underneath of him, including Alison Mack, are now being charged with human trafficking because they profited or benefited in some way from forcing someone against their will to engage in labor or sex. Well, and it's interesting to read, like, the New York Times in their article, they're interviewing Mac, and just the casualness of, yeah, this is what we're doing, and here's why we're doing it, and that maybe she really believes what she's saying, but that that control can be a weird thing, that you, you can get into these coercive environments, and how do you say it? Alison Mack is an interesting picture of... A trafficker. Yeah. She doesn't fit the standard mold. She might even be a believer, but just because you find a good justification for controlling other people and having them do things for you doesn't mean you're right. doesn't mean you're sane. It doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean it's not trafficking. Yes. Now, there's question with her, but also we could talk briefly about Sarah. Like Sarah recruited people into the lower organization and you know now she questions everything but she also profited off of it and 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 so it's like is she victim is she perpetrator like that one of one of the things that people are pushing back on like in comments and and feedback is well i don't know if she should be called a hero i mean she she did this and she did that and there's some validity to those constructs i don't but but part of it is why do I have to call her a victim or a hero or any of these other things? It's it's complicated, yep. and she seems to recognize that it's complicated. But with Allison Max, and she's in the upper echelon, there's the question too of to what degree is she a quote a pawn or being manipulated by Keith Rainier, and what degree is she a self acting perpetrator, which is something that we've discussed before. So uh, what, what do you have to say about that uh, aspect of this? I, well, I think, I mean, like, this is just sort of like racism and sexism.txt happening again, right? And sort of human trafficking, that we're, we're shocked that this, that this has happened and played out this way, because most of the perpetrators and victims were rich, well-known, or at least well-established white folks in the U.S. So, I mean, I think that's what it is. I think that's what it is rolling back. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, and some people don't seem sympathetic because people were yeah. wealthy or, or made so, money. Yeah. yeah, and that, I mean, even in the CBC podcast, that's reflected, I think, pretty well of sort of this idea of like, well, but people benefited from this. People did well at the beginning from this. I I feel a lot of respect for the people who, who initially left DOS because they tried really hard to bring as many people out with them and have continued to try to, to get more people out, which I... You know that's a lot of attention, which I which I appreciate. I think has been very is is very good, but I can certainly see. You know they admit though themselves that they were perpetrators of you know at the very least, sort of like mental violence against other people. So that that I don't mind quite so much. Well, and to 
even attempt to give them the benefit of the, of the doubt, there are things that are questionable. Like having a master-slave relationship as an act of devotion is questionable, period. Yeah. Like even, I mean, things I've seen within Christendom and where you have spiritual advisors and stuff, it's not master-slave. So there's that. Yeah. The lifetime commitment that your promise should be sacrosanct, that's problematic. I mean, even... Even marriage in America, you you have the chance to get out of it if it's abusive. I mean, I or for that, any reason, I, really. That that I don't mind so much in terms of if you feel like you're making an internal because, like, when you go through, say, baptism or catechism in the Catholic Church, it's this idea that you're making a lifetime commitment to God. But the difference is is that Jesus doesn't leak your nudes if you switch churches. Well, that's the other part, but <laughs> still, still with a lifetime commitment. Like making commitments great, but life can change and to have somebody hold over your promise. That's that's what I mean, is that to 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 yeah. have there be a threat of violence of some sort attached to the promise is not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, the collateral that degree of collateral, it's very, very problematic, which again, even their lawyer seemed uncomfortable with it. And he, yeah. he defended everything and he couldn't find a way to defend that. I will say, lawyer, very good. He was basically, if you want, listen to the CBC podcast, it's it's the last episode that really deals a lot with the lawyer. And man, that guy can tap dance a conversation. He also represented Farmer Bro in court. So good job, him. So apparently he likes a particular type of client. But I'm a little, yeah, I... There, there. I, I have no doubt. I know that there was sort of a when this first happened. You and I had even sort of joked, like, "Is this really like sex trafficking? Is this really labor trafficking?" Because as it as initially was positioned, it just seemed sort of just a cult of people making weird choices. But then, as it, it came out, the the branding, when it came out, the the collateral, when it came out, the the forcing of you know, um, making slaves perform oral sex on each other while people watched, you know, it just, that level was, we were like, okay, cool. Like that's, that's trafficking. That is, that is very clearly trafficking. And so I, I, to me, you know, just even looking at what the U S attorney's office has put online, it seems like they have a very, very clear case. And while I'm, I'm guessing based on the podcast's that the and, and the statements made by the defense, they're going to try really hard to to phrase this as an issue of well, you know, uh, people consent to strange things. I I don't see that really working for them very well. Yeah, there there are aspects of this like DOS that really have similarities to standard trafficking situations. What makes it really strange is that it's within the context of a self help organization. And and that the lead trafficker is famous. So yeah, such a weird story. It and and the the court case is not it has not actually gone to trial yet. Um, but this will be something that I will be listening to like crazy uh, once once this comes out because I am I am so intrigued by this and I do I do feel like to go back to your earlier questions Seth like I do feel badly for like say even Allison Mack because it looks like again based on court transcripts that like she gave all of her money and, and an extensive extensive amount of collateral to Keith so just the fact that she seems to continue to believe it I don't know if if 
that makes her evil. I'm just, you know, just she she participated in trafficking, so I think you should be punished for your for your actions. I just think that maybe we need to be a little bit we being the public just need to be a little bit more aware that like a lot of times traffickers were themselves victims and we need to we need to acknowledge that. And I think this is helpful as far as anti-trafficking narratives in that the standard narrative is we think of somebody who is being so oppressed and wants to escape and can't either because it's really you know, like they can't trust the cops or whatever, like where it's such a clear, awful situation. But control can look like this. Yeah. And and, and it's not the only story. We did our uh, podcast with Wendy Barnes where it was somebody else who was really good at being manipulative and in a sense creating his own cultic environment. That control and having your uh, fingers into somebody's mind, it, it can be really sophisticated. It, it can be it can be without the direct strings and everything that people can see. And like this is what it can look like. And so when you're thinking of people controlling other people, expand your horizons of how that can look. Yeah. And I, I think just to be honest, too, of like where where trafficking happens in the U.S. I mean, I don't think people necessarily look at, say, an MLM or a religious group or, or philosophical group. I mean, they, they say that they're a self-help group or self-help group as being, you know, a hotbed of trafficking, but it very well can be. Well, and frankly, I mean, churches can be manipulative of people. Businesses can be manipulative. Psychological groups can be manipulative. Like in terms of just manipulating other people and using their labor in some fashion, if you've ever known anyone who's had an abusive workplace situation where maybe their boss is really abusive, like that's not necessarily trafficking, but it's on the spectrum. And we have some things in this organization where it looks like, well, there, there's some good things, but then there's questionable things. And then you have these stories from DOS, which are really creepy and disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're only going to hear there. There are a number of people who have been identified as people giving like survivor or, or victim impact statements at the trial who we haven't heard from yet in, in the public. So I think that as as the trial progresses, I think that we've maybe only seen the tip of the iceberg of sort of just horrifying stories that are going to come out of this. We haven't used the term brainwashing. It's been thrown out. It's something that I think the lawyer dismissed it, but so did oh, yeah, some he was other like, people. Brainwashing hasn't happened since the 70s. It's a Cold yeah. War holdover. And it's like, did you do that? Brainwashing, brainwashing is not a scientific term. And so it doesn't no. have a hard meaning. So it's easy enough to dismiss in that respect that it's more of a media term, mm -hmm. but things like psychological abuse and coercion, coercion specifically is a legal term. Yes. And there is coercion and you and can be coerced I, into consenting. <laughs> and it is, I would like to point out it, blackmail is a federal crime. So, <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. I don't, I would be shocked if Rainier didn't get something. Oh, yeah. So what he's he's charged for, I think it's 15 to 50 years possible mm -hmm. for sort of uh, the, the trafficking. 
I, what do you think? Do you think he'll get the full 50? I don't think he'll get 50 years. I, unless he, like a lot of very smart men, like far, quote unquote, like pharma bro ends up harming himself on, on the stand with some statements or some claims that are a problem. Uh, he definitely seems like, and this is just me interpreting some of the things his lawyer said in his CBC interview, that there's a possibility this is a guy who who wants to defend himself, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I, I certainly think he will get convicted of something. Allison Mack, I think, is a, a more interesting mm-hmm. case now that she's also been indicted and arrested and, and charged for the purposes of, um, you know, what what will they end up how to like what what will her defense end up being i think that she's got a chance for a better defense than keith does but it is kind of hard to to fight against evidence that is you know 20 plus people who have a brand on them yeah which is one of those sad things whereas yeah like if there wasn't a brand it would be easier to be dismissive some people are still dismissive so this is this has been this has been a podcast long time coming because I we kept pushing it back because more and more info kept coming out. Uh, there's a Vice documentary that recently dropped on this, you know, so more and more stuff kept coming out. And with each increasing sort of investigative journalism piece that came out, the information was just dramatic. And so we finally we finally went for it. But uh, this is definitely one that we will have when the court case is over. We will have a, a update for all of y'all on what the final verdict was. Yeah, well, and, you know, if one is going to call yourself a master and you're going to have somebody else be a slave and do labor for you and you're going to brand them, that's not a good look. Yeah, no, it's very hard to then later argue that that was all just a metaphorical series of terms. Yeah. All right. Well, it was about an hour and a half. We weren't sure how long this was going to go because it's a complicated mess. Mess is a very good phrasing, yes. The CBC one, that's like, what, six podcasts? Something like that? Yeah, I think it's uh, six or seven, a series of. Yep, so that's even longer. So if you want more with interviews of people that have been involved and uh, clips of Keith. And Alison Mack singing. Give that a shot. Oh, yeah. There's also some videos of her talking about Jeunesse online that you can find. Yeah, their YouTube channel is still up. And there's there's so much that we didn't even touch about, like, Keith's personal life, his history before this really. You know, they go back to interviews sort of with, with ex-girlfriends before he, he made a bit, you know. So there's there's a number of things I would really, that we don't even, you know, how the the group would apparently throw these like almost month long parties for him for his birthday. There's just a lot (laughs) that didn't necessarily directly deal with sort of the human trafficking angle that this podcast focuses on, but I think is nevertheless like incredibly interesting that I, that I would recommend everybody go check out. Yeah. Well, and something else that isn't a good look is if you are a Messiah like personality who runs an organization and you happen to, have a pseudo harem at with different women in that organization that's also not a good look well and also the fact that he is charged one of his charges is that of uh, engaging in sex with an underage girl so that's a side issue that that's just a straight-up criminal offense uh she was not involved in the organization so this isn't necessarily tied to nexium beyond the fact that it's tied to the founder and creator of nexium 
but just something to, you know, so there's a number, things aren't going great for Keith. Yeah. Personally, when I run into people who are really strong about having answers, my skepticism tends to go up and I'm less likely to listen to them. Yeah. I, I, you know. It's based on experience too of people that I have listened to and then realized that there's holes and then I look stronger for the holes. I would also just like to once, once again, if he calls himself Vanguard, <laughs> that's not a name. <laughs> like that's like, look, like you do, you do have to do, and I'm not trying, I, I'm not trying to make fun of the people who, who believed in him and loved him. You know, I'm not, or continue to do so because, because this is again, like this is an organization that's still going you know, not nearly as strong as it was in its heyday, but still has has a membership and certainly continues to generate revenue. So he definitely has supporters. It's just, if a guy who didn't have a ton of charisma walked up to you on the street and said, yo, my name is Vanguard. I have all the solutions to your problems. It's that you're too much of a victim. By the way, women should be subservient to men. If your response to that would be, get away from me, you weirdo. When it happens in a Sheridan ballroom, just because you paid five grand to be there doesn't mean you should listen to it. Just saying. Um, be be aware. You know, never trust somebody who tells you to cut off contact with everyone who's not paying money to be in your organization. It's normally a bad, bad look. But I guess like, stay safe out there, everybody. Don't join a cult that can also be a human trafficking front. And um, I guess what was what was the other female lead option if you weren't for Allison Max character on Smallville? It was uh, Kristen Crook, Lana. Lana, I mean, I know that, uh, God, and even other more things we didn't talk about, the fact that there there were other Smallville actors and other prominent actors engaged in Nexium who have since come out and been like, yeah, no, we don't support that, we're not for it, etc. But yeah, so I guess maybe if you're going to rewatch Smallville, maybe romantically root for the other one to end up with Clark Kent. I don't know. Yeah, so many seasons. But anyway. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> this has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com. <laughs>